This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. So I'm I'm really excited about this week's guest, Jason Zweig. He is a reporter, columnist, author. Um, you probably know his work as the Weekend Investor column in the Wall Street Journal. I'm a big fan of some of his books, including Your Money and Your Brain, which is one of the earliest looks at neuroeconomics and neurofinance. He has a book coming up. Uh, it's an updated version of inspired by Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary. It's called The Devil's Financial Dictionary, and we, we talk about that. We talk a little bit about journalism and what it's going to be like going forward, the impact of social media, Twitter, etc. Uh, I've read him for so many years and know his work for for just so long. It, it was really interesting sitting down and talking with him about his process and who his mentors and influences were and what sort of advice he would give to somebody in the in the finance world. And uh, I just found it to be really quite fascinating. Uh, we probably won about 90 minutes, so given how long that is, um, rather than me babble, let me just say, here is my conversation with Jason Zweig. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, our special guest is journalist and author Jason Zweig. He is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He is also the author of the upcoming The Devil's Financial Dictionary, loosely based on Ambrose Bierce's famous Devil's Dictionary. I actually have read several of his previous books and really enjoyed him, one of which, Your Money and Your Brain, might have been one of the first books that looked at behavioral economics from the investor's perspective. He also helped Danny Kahneman edit Thinking Fast and Slow, as well as being the editor of the revised edition of Benjamin Graham's classic, The Intelligent Investor. Jason Zweig, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to be here, Mary. So you have a long and storied history in financial journalism, and we'll we'll get into some of the more granular stuff, but let, let's just go a little bit over your background. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention in 2013, you won the Loeb Award for personal finance writing. You've also been a writer for Money Magazine, Time, CNN. You covered mutual funds for Forbes, and today you're the personal finance writer at The Journal. Uh, how did you find your way into financial journalism? Well, I think like a lot of your guests, Barry, uh, I'm going to talk about luck. I think um, anybody who has done reasonably well in just about any field who doesn't credit luck first and foremost is kidding himself or is, herself. Isn't that fascinating? When When I finally sit down and put together the book of Masters in Business, how many guests, and not just guests who had like one lucky break, but guys who were billionaires like Howard Marks mm -hmm. and, and Leon Cooperman, each say, well, you know, you got really lucky. That's an amazing yeah. statement, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and I think it's totally true. And we all like to pride ourselves on our abilities and our skills, but without luck, I'm not sure any of us would be where we are today. I mean, I, I always wanted to be a writer. I was always fascinated by business. I have no formal training in business or economics. You went to Columbia, but you didn't go to Columbia Business School. Correct. You went to Columbia College. Correct. And what did you study undergraduate? Art history. 
And so, of course, that makes perfect sense. You would yes. go from that to personal finance. Right. And I, and I think it's probably worth pointing out that uh, one of your former guests, Charlie Ellis, also oh, sure. also uh, spent some time studying art history. What, what um, a delightful gentleman he oh, is. He's great. One he's of the great. best. Yeah. So, so you, you, the real question I always wanted to ask you, and I'll, I'll do it mm-hmm. now, is how did you manage to avoid a career in asset management? Uh, well, I think I, I learned early enough in my career as a financial journalist that uh, luck is supremely important in investment management. And very early on, I had a hard time distinguishing luck from skill, and I still do. You need a long period and lots of data and the right decision-making environment to stand a chance of telling whether something is luck or skill. But that's just a long way of saying that um, I didn't want to go into investment management because I felt I I sort of knew where the fundamental body was buried. And the body that was buried was that you know, a lot of people who think they're skillful are just lucky. And I didn't really want to go through my professional career with that on my conscience. I guess I have other things on my conscience, the, by the but way, not the, that. The flip side of that is a lot of people who think they're unlucky merely are unskillful. Correct. So you mentioned you always were fascinated by business. Were you always interested in stocks and investing? Or was that something you came to later? In life? Yeah, I bought my first stock when I was uh, 16, Barry. It was, um, And it was a fascinating experience, especially in hindsight. I bought a stock based on an absolutely god-awful book that when I was 16 thought was pretty persuasive. It was called How I Made $2 Million oh, in the sure. Stock Market by Nicholas Darvis. Absolutely. I, I read that a long, long time yeah, ago. Yeah, and you remember that thing he talks about where you know increasing volume on rising price. Volume a, precedes price. Yes. Was the and way it's, I read Exactly. And you wait for the price to confirm the volume and then you then you buy. So and you're a closet technician. Is I, that what you're I, well, us? I, I, at least I was. <laughs> this is actually a, a, an interesting story because I, uh, I did exactly what he suggested. I took graph paper mm-hmm. and I tracked 10 stocks and um, I had a copy of the S&P stock guide. This was 1975 mm-hmm. or six. Not Seven. a great time to be an equity investor in the first no, place. Nope. Um, and I found a stock that was called, and I'm saying called, Mac AF. I didn't know what it was. The S&P stock guide said that it uh, it produced licorice and I think ball bearings or mm-hmm. something like that. Sure, because you can't have one without right. the other. And uh, so, and it it turned out to be a perfect Darvis stock. And I bought 100 shares at nine and five eighths with my, you know, summer earnings. And it went up to 12 and seven eighths in a matter of days. And I didn't know a thing about the company other than this ridiculous theory that Mm -hmm. appeared to be confirmed. It turned out later to be McAndrews and Forbes. Okay. Ron Perlman's original takeover vehicle. And I think this was around the time that he was first amassing shares. So I bought it for the wrong reason. I made money in it for the wrong reason. And I got stopped out at 12 and 7 eighths. But this was 1975. So I didn't know I'd been stopped out until the trade confirm arrived in the mail about a week later. And I went bonkers. And I was like, I'm riding this thing all the way to 20. And I called my parents' broker and I said, get me back in. And then he flat out refused 
and my dad had to buy it for me. And it went to 14 and a quarter or something. And my dad browbeat me into selling it. And then where did it ultimately go? Uh, I th- it did very well in the long run. I don't think it did too well right after that. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Jason Zweig, author of the upcoming The Devil's Financial Dictionary. Before we get into the book, I want to talk a little bit about social media. I see you tweeting pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the questions I had for you as a professional journalist, what's the impact of Twitter and to a lesser degree blogs on the changing nature of financial journalism? Well, I think it's I think it's really big, Barry, and it's it's good and bad. And maybe let me talk about the bad first. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, t- up until a few years ago, certainly until ten years ago, probably five, um, the reading and investing public could rely on major media outlets to be their filters of information. If you saw something in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, for that matter, you could be fairly sure it was reliable. Vetted, somebody had looked into it, it wasn't yeah. just a random it's, it, comment. Just or... not somebody spouting or repeating information generated by people with an axe to grind without checking at first. And I think the danger that we're in, in a world dominated by social media and kind of insta-pundits through the blogosphere. That's literally a blog, insta-pundit. Yeah, I know. Um, but I wasn't referring to them in particular. <laughs> um, is that it's it's much harder today to make qualitative judgments as a consumer of news about what's reliable and what's not because you're just drinking from a fire hose all day long. And I think the value of Twitter is that by giving you those microbursts mm-hmm. of information and opinion from people, you get to see the, you get to see what they think in short spurts. And you can fairly quickly form a judgment about how objective they are, how reliable their information is. And I think ultimately it's going to help people separate the good from the bad. You know, one of my favorite aspects about Twitter is just how easy it is to derive a conclusion from somebody's Twitter numbers. So if someone's got 80,000 tweets and 147 followers – that's a pretty fair assessment that this person is not cranking out quality tweets. On the other hand, when and Warren Buffett is probably the extreme opposite of that, he's got four tweets and six million followers. Right. But between those extremes, there's a spectrum. And, you know, I have uh, under 100,000 followers. My partner has a little over 100,000 followers. And we have a lot less tweets than we have followers. So somebody who's looking at that can say, oh, there has to be something worthwhile and substantive here. Not that followers are everything. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. if that was the case, Justin Bieber would be philosopher king. And we know that's not the case. But that's a real good shorthand to say, hey, is this person putting out anything of quality? Is there some way to double check, validate, see if uh, the crowd has any wisdom and they've endorsed this person or not? Isn't it remarkable, Barry, how how hard that simple algorithm that you just expressed is for so many people to understand. I mean, every day on Twitter, you see recommended lists of people who tweet. And then you look at them and you see, oh, here's somebody they're recommending because he has 50,000 followers. 
without even noting that he follows 80,000 people and he's tweeted 40,000 times. Right, right. So, you know, a lot of people are still using followers alone. No, it can't as, be that. As the metric. You have to, yeah. it has to be a combination of quantitative and qualitative. Exactly. You have to say, has the crowd valid, you know, it's sort of like when, when you go to Metacritic, you basically say, what were the reviews like? What did the audience say? When when you get a, a movie like Jurassic Park or Mission Impossible, and both the reviewers like it and the crowd likes it, so that's how I use the the Twitter mm-hmm. numbers. And mm-hmm. we've now lost half our audience. Let let's <laughs> let's turn to the Devil's Financial Dictionary, which comes out in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a preliminary copy of of the book, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to sit down and chat with you. Mm-hmm. I found it let, let me let me rather than me telling you what I think let me go some of the early reviews Bob Schiller Nobel winner and professor of finance at Yale University the most amusing presentation of principles of finance I've ever seen John Bogle founder of the Vanguard group laugh cry and learn as you enjoy the sparkling devil's financial dictionary the list of people who have given you blurbs Burton Malkiel, author of Random Walk Down, uh, Wall Street, delightfully humorous and stunningly irreverent. James Grant, open this wonderful book to any page. Try not to laugh. I dare you. And then Bill Sharp uh, essentially created the Sharp Ratio and uh, another Nobel laureate at Stanford. The run of people you got to, um, I was like disappointed. No Buffett, and then I scroll down, and there's Warren Buffett's blurb on it. No, it's um, <laughs> it's an amazing run of people. Tell us a little bit about the motivation and thought process behind the book. Well, I've always loved uh, Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary. So Barry. great, you know. Bierce uh, is maybe the most unjustly neglected author of. The 19th century in America. He was a contemporary of Mark Twain's. He was at least as brilliant. Uh, he wrote some of the most devastating epigrams ever written. And um, he was brutally cynical about American society and institutions. And he took on a few, he, he basically compiled the Devil's Dictionary as a collection of satirical definitions of terms most people think of in a very conventional way. And he just blew up every sort of bit of conventional wisdom and turned them all on their head. And it just occurred to me about two years ago that this project that I'd had in mind for about 15 years would be easier to do than I realized. And I just started doing it in my spare time and my wife heard me cackling in the kitchen at night, <laughs> and I realized if I was bothering her, I must be having fun, and uh, I just kept at it. And you know, my goal was to try to do something like what Bierce did, and bring it to the world of Wall Street. And you know, a, a couple of definitions from the original Devil's Dictionary are worth keeping in mind. I mean, these are bear in mind. I'm going to read these. And first comes the word, then comes the part of speech, then comes the definition. So this is Ambrose Bierce. Ambidextrous, adjective. Able to pick with equal skill a right-hand pocket or a left. <laughs> Gotta like that. In the, in the last 30 seconds we have of this segment, um, what are some of your favorite ones from uh, the new Financial Devil's Dictionary? I'll give you one of my favorite. Day trader, 
C idiot. Yeah, that's uh, you're that, gonna get some hate mail on that one. <laughs> that might be my favorite too, and maybe we can maybe we can get into some of the longer ones a bit later. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm speaking with Jason Zweig, personal finance writer and author of numerous books. Uh, his most recent being The Devil's Financial Dictionary. Tell me uh, some of your favorite selections from this volume. Well, Barry, maybe I can maybe I can read one quickly. Um, you know, I'll read the definition, the part of speech, and then I have to warn everybody. There are uh, what I call flights of fancy in these, which, okay. which are these little um, imaginary passages featuring people who bear no resemblance to anyone you and I might okay. know. Okay. So, all right. So, option noun. The right to buy or sell a financial asset at a fixed price on or before a specific time. From the Latin optio, I choose. A boon for stockholders whose clients don't understand how options work and generate a fortune in commissions as they attempt to learn. And here comes the flight of fancy. Stockholders or stockbrokers? Stockbrokers. Explained Hugh asking me, a client of the brokerage firm Born Rich and How, I put two children through Harvard by trading options. Unfortunately, they were my broker's children. <laughs> That's great. So um, obviously Ambrose Bierce, huge, huge influence. You mentioned you were working on this at night. How long did it take you to assemble? This is a pretty thorough financial dictionary. How, how long did this take? It didn't take very long, actually. Uh, you know, a lot of these I'd had in my head for a long time. So it's just a matter of getting it out and onto paper. Yeah. The real th – what I'm trying to do with this book is in each case when I define a term, I'm saying to myself, you know, after more than a quarter century of, you know, researching and reporting on the financial markets, can I take everything I've learned and boil it down into 150 words or less? And then if I can do that, how about 50 words? And in some cases, I got them down to a single word. Give me just an example uh, other than day trader. Um, uh, well, there's one which is uh, human, adjective, biased. We're going to talk a little more about the biases and cognitive issues uh, of humans coming up in a bit. Uh, who is the ideal audience for this? Is this geared for the professional? Is this for a mom and pop investor? Who are you thinking about when you were writing this? Well, really everybody. Uh, there's a lot of inside jokes in this book that I think only a professional audience will get and will certainly be annoyed by and I hope <laughs> amused by. Uh, I think one of the wonderful things about the Wall Street community is that people do have an ability to laugh at themselves, um, at least the better people in the in the field do. And there's a lot to laugh about. So, To say the least. I'm curious as to how the research for this went. I know you said this has been kicking around your head for 15 years, but yeah, I just picture you doing a pretty deep dive, if not wearing the white gloves in the stacks of Yale, certainly working your way through um, either Lexis or Google to try and find some, some early uh, etiology of some of these words. Yeah. A lot in a lot of cases because it, it is a true dictionary. So I was trying to get at where a lot of these terms are derived from, mm -hmm. and in many cases, uh, people who use these terms all day long don't really know what they mean. 
So they're just using them as jargon, not as, yeah. as true definition. Yeah, exactly. And and so, yes, there's a, uh, I did a lot of historical and archival research trying to figure out when a certain term was first used, uh, where it came from. I spent a lot of time with the Oxford English Dictionary and um, all kinds of historical research as well. And, and you have quite the background as an editor. Uh, one of the questions I had to ask, so the very famous classic book by Benjamin Graham, The Intelligent Investor, you actually were the editor of the revised edition. How on earth did that invitation come along? Well, I don't think it hurt that I was a Graham aficionado. I mean, I I first read The Intelligent Investor in March 1987 um, when I started as a financial journalist at Forbes magazine, and I'd probably read it cover to cover at least six times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd read almost all of Graham's shorter writings as well and all the biographies of him that existed at the time. But ultimately, it was uh, it was luck like everything else we've been talking about. Um, a friend of mine had uh, written a book for HarperCollins, uh, one of the top editors at the publishing house, was out to lunch with her and said, uh, you know, we have this book. Who do you think should do it? And she said, oh, well, there's only one person who should do it. And she told him to ask me. And why did she do that? Because we had both been at a party about a month beforehand. We hadn't seen each other in years. I had seen her across the room and I said, oh, I haven't seen her in years. And so I made a special point going to say hi. And if I hadn't said hi to her, she would have recommended somebody else. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. We're speaking with Jason Zweig, personal finance writer and author. Um, One of the things I wanted to really go over with you uh, is your perspective as a personal finance columnist. And I'm going to start by quoting you, and then then we'll, we'll discuss it. You once wrote, My job is to write the exact same thing between 50 and 100 times a year in such a way that neither my editors nor my readers will ever think I'm repeating myself. Explain. Um, Yeah, there's a simple reason for that, Barry. Um, And I think you and I think alike on this. There's, There's really only a handful of things you can tell investors about their portfolios uh, that are true before you get into things that are bad for them. And, you know, we could disagree about the number. There might be six things that are good for people. Mm -hmm. There might be 30, Mm -hmm. but there aren't 100. And um, and there's at most a couple dozen. So we're not going to see a daily television show for you where an hour a day – you wax eloquent on the issues of, of the moment. Well, probably not because, you know, as I as I also mentioned in the same piece you're quoting from, you know, 99.5% of the time, the right thing for people to do is nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a financial media that exists all day long, nonstop, having to provide people with what appears to be information. Well, certainly content. Content. And if you you can't do that if you believe that the right thing to tell people to do is nothing. So the Jason's Why TV show would be 
have a broadly diversified asset allocation model, rebalance regularly, watch your fees. See you tomorrow. Yeah. Diversify, buy and hold, minimize your costs and your taxes, and uh, keep your hands in your pockets. Don't don't just uh, do something, sit there. Right, and keep other people's hands out of your pockets. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. So let me let me re-ask that that question in a slightly different way along the same spirit of that that question what does good financial advice look like good financial advice um keeps people from being their own worst enemies mm-hmm. you know benjamin graham famously wrote about that in the introduction to the intelligent investor and i think it all really boils down to one very very simple thing which is that Um, markets regress to the mean and the way you in the short run the way you attract attention to yourself if you're providing financial advice is by encouraging people to bet against regression to the mean so if an asset is rapidly going up in price you tell people buy more while you still can and if it's going down you tell them to sell before it's too late but if you're trying to help people get on the right side of regression to the mean, then you give them counter-cyclical advice. When an asset is going up in price, you tell them to be cautious. And when it's going down, you tell them to become more aggressive. Quite interesting. So let me ask you the flip side of that. Uh, why is it that so much bad advice seems to hang around and not die? Why? Are, why or, or ask slightly differently, why is there so much zombie advice for investors? <laughs> well, I think it boils down to something very simple, Barry. I think, you know, humans have a profound um, a profound desire to believe in magic. Mm-hmm. People want to be lied to. And there's Was a- it you who recently wrote um, the three ways to make money mm-hmm. as a as a writer? Lie to if you if you tell people to truth truth who don't want to hear it you're not going to make any money. If mm-hmm. you tell people truth who want to hear the truth, they're they're going to make some money. But if you lie to the people who want to be lied to, you're going to make the most amount of money. Exactly. Yeah. If you if you tell the truth to people who want to be lied to, you'll starve. That's unbelievable. It's true. And so, what is it within our makeup that wants us to be told? the soft, easy, comfortable thing and not, hey, here, here's, you know, tough love. Here's the cold, hard reality. The sooner you learn that, the better off you are. Well, people are, people are machines, right? And they're machines that are designed to optimize a few things. Pattern recognition, mm-hmm. uh, self-enhancement, mm-hmm. and self-delusion. I mean, human beings are really good at those three things. We're, we almost certainly have evolved to maximize those things. And that's why people are so uh, susceptible to bad advice because bad advice preys on that stuff. Emotionally, preys to those emotional hot buttons. Exactly. Interesting. So let, let's talk about some more good advice. Who are the young writers that you were reading today that you find to be giving the sort of good advice or or good writing that is beneficial to investors. Um yeah, I think I I think I I like some of the same people you do, Barry. Um Well, and, it's not a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, you being here 
is just my confirmation bias at work. Yeah, so. exactly. And mine, too. <laughs> um, you know, the first person I would name would be Morgan Housel of The Motley Fool. I mm-hmm. think um, I think he does just incredibly sharp, really insightful stuff. Love his work. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, ben Carlson, A Wealth of Common Sense, really. No, new book out. Yeah, that's his blog, yeah. Wealth of Common Another he guy does, we really love. He does great love. stuff. James Osborne uh, at Basin Asset Management does also really cool stuff. Uh, there's a bunch of other people as well um, who are terrific. It's amazing how the meritocracy of financial writing, how these names have risen up to the top fairly quickly. Ben Carlson, as an example, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, he started blogging, I don't know, a year ago, maybe less. Really relative, maybe it's two years ago. Relatively short time, quickly found an institutional audience mm-hmm. and puts out really, really good stuff on a regular basis. Yeah, and I think this is a very hopeful sign for the future. You know, there are a lot of people, and Charlie Munger is one, worrying. Where does he blog? <laughs> At BerkshireHathaway.com. Oh, okay. That's uh, I know I recognize the name. He, uh, he's very worried about the institutional impact of the decline of the traditional great newspaper. And we don't know yet what's going to replace it. But the fact that that really talented, bright young people have been able to sort of rise to the top, I think, is is a hopeful sign for the future. I, I can't say I, I disagree. Um, what other writers do you read? Who, who else have you read over the years that really stood out as, as a powerful and influential voice to you? Well, a lot of them are uh, are now uh, of another generation. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie Ellis was a very big sure. influence on me. Um, uh, ben Graham, of course. Uh, probably the single biggest influences on the on the way I try to think uh, would be Richard Feynman, the the physicist, the physicist. Um, Surely you chess. Yes. Um, uh, whose wonderful books, these oral histories, and there's a series of them, there's four or five of them, I think, are among the most engaging books on how to think, mm-hmm. I I believe you could find anywhere. And, of course, Danny Kahneman, the... Uh, Thinking Fast uh, oh, and Slow. Yeah, was a huge influence on me as mm-hmm. well. And I, it w- I was very fortunate to be able to work with him and help him on the book. That, that was a fascinating book, which leads to a question. So you and I both found behavioral economics fairly early in our career. How did you stumble into that space? Uh, well, I realized around 1995 that I was running out of interesting questions. I didn't think I, I didn't think by any means I had all the answers, but as someone who didn't have professional training in finance or economics, but who sort of sat at the feet of the smartest people I could find, a lot of the questions were starting to feel repetitive to me, my questions and other people's questions. And uh, there was still this, this fundamental mystery that nobody seemed to have an answer to, which is why do smart people do such stupid things when it comes to money? It's amazing. History is replete with examples, whether it's Isaac Newton, Mark Twain, go down the list oh of, of various brilliant, insightful people who all managed to just blow up in the stock market. Yeah, yeah. And and that's really the central question that has obsessed me 
for the past 20 years is why do smart people become stupid when money comes into the room? Well, we've run out of time for this segment. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where the tape keeps rolling and we continue our conversation. Uh, if you want to catch more of Jason Zweig's work, you can follow him on Twitter. Your Twitter handle is? Jason Zweig, WSJ. Uh, I'm Barry Ritholtz. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast extras. Uh, my guest this week is Jason Zweig, and there's so much stuff I wanted to ask you about. You know, it's funny, those segments that are seven minutes, eight minutes, six minutes, 11 minutes, it, I, I lose a little bit of rhythm because I'm always aware of the time. And then we get to this segment right. and, and we could kind of take our shoes off and kick back and, and relax. So let me go over some of the questions that I skipped that I wanted to, to ask you. And these are really print, real questions printed out. You know, you can you can get uh, the home copies if you want. Um, we talked briefly about Twitter and blogs and social media. Um, what I wanted to ask was not so much about commentary and analysis, which is always a, its own separate page in, in a newspaper, but what about just straight-up reporting? We keep seeing various media outlets just ending various local reporting, City Hall, that, the other thing. Uh, what does this mean for the future of, of actual, not what you and I do, but actual reporting, where people go out and try and find the facts in current events and, and tell the rest of the world about it? Yeah, I think... Th I think you know, it, it, all of this is like uh, is sort of like a Newton's law of thermodynamics, right, Barry? I mean, for everything created, something is destroyed. It certainly and, seems that way, right? And you know, the the internet and the advent of social media have democratized the spread, and for that matter, the generation of news and information, so that anyone with a cell phone can become a broadcaster or a reporter. The problem is that anybody who has done shoe leather investigative reporting in one of the great newsrooms of America, like the Wall Street Journal or, or the New York Times or the Washington Post or the LA Times, any of the great or, or once great newspapers in this country, or magazines for that matter, can tell you that Reporting is brutally hard work there, to, it's to get really, it right. It's really hard work to do. It's really hard work to prevent yourself from injecting your own yeah. viewpoint, bias, personality. It, it's And it's absolutely essential to a functioning democracy. It's, I mean, it's not – the press is not called the fourth estate for nothing. And Charlie Munger's fear – and this is the fear that I share – is that – when reporting gets atomized the way we see it uh, unfolding on the internet and in social media, you don't have that institutional memory and historical tradition and most importantly, that professional training in newsrooms the way you once did. You don't have reporters doing two, three, five years of understudy with a master. Yep. And uh -huh. And so the attention to fairness and detail and proper methodology 
falls by the wayside. And if you think about House of Cards, for example, the the you know the TV I'm going to call it a melodrama with that's very compelling with Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. House of Cards, House of Games. House of Cards. House of Cards. Okay. Um, you know, in that show, over and over again, you see these journalists at a newspaper clearly modeled after the Washington Post mm-hmm. doing things that are so unscrupulous mm-hmm. that if you did them once at the Wall Street Journal, you would be summarily fired. And it's it now just goes without passing, without mention. I think the American public sort of takes it for granted that journalists are sloppy creeps who you know, invade people's privacy and lie to their sources regularly. And in fact, believe it or not, journalists in a traditional newsroom environment are phenomenally ethical people who who would – you could put most journalists' thumb in a screw and tighten it before you would get them to tell a lie. Mm-hmm. That, that, I don't disagree with that. It's always the bad eggs that, that spoil everybody's perception – But I want to mention something you just said earlier, that anybody with a cell phone can can broadcast. And and literally, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this right now. I'm going to use Periscope and broadcast a few seconds of our interview off of a phone. Yeah. This is fascinating technology that did not exist. Forget 25 years ago. This didn't exist Eight months ago. Exactly. It's amazing that the technology for this exists today. And so how do you compete with that? How do you build a a television station and go through the training of reporters and journalists when everyone and anyone can be a citizen journalist? What happens to that business model that digital technology is is challenging? It's amazing. Well, first of all, Barry, thank you for not pointing the camera at your feet. Um, and secondly... <laughs> I said kick off our shoes and get comfortable, yeah. and uh, literally, that's you know, what we did. And, and secondly, um, you know, look, you're raising an incredibly troubling question, and we don't yet know the answer because we don't know how this is going to play out. I think ultimately the better emerging news organizations, and, you know, we could all think of you know, some of the candidates, right? Like, you know, maybe Vice or some some mm-hmm. outfit like that. Um, we'll get the capital and the experience and the professionalism that they need to build something that competes with a traditional newsroom like the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. And um, that could take a long time, though. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, those organizations are going to have to uh, cannibalize the existing great news organizations to staff themselves up with people who have the experience and the ethical background to run a proper news organization. I'm running I'm running out of battery here so I'm going to kill Periscope and I think that that's done but um that was just 30 seconds of that. Um I I think you're on to something with that which which leads me to a question I wanted to get to earlier. Um, and didn't. It's actually two related questions. The first is, this comes right from you, from your money and your brain. People who receive frequent news updates on their investments earn lower returns than those who get no news whatsoever. Discuss. Yeah, this is based on a series of fascinating experiments done by uh, a psychologist named Paul Andreessen in the 1980s. He was a 
Columbia for a while and Harvard, and he took uh, he took experimental subjects and divided them into two groups. Some got essentially no no updated information on their chosen investment portfolios, and others got frequent, in fact, almost constant news updates. And then he tracked their investment performance, and he found that the more often people got news, the more often they traded. And we the, know what the net outcome of that is for the average investor. The more you trade, the less you earn. And it's a direct relationship. It's just if A, then B. If you get more news, information, more updates, you will act on it because it will feel informative to you even if it's just even if the news is just noise you will feel you have to act on it because it seems like news and it seems significant i i call a lot of what gets reported falls into the recency effect look we get a non-farm payroll every month it doesn't mean that it changes the value of what your investment is and half of the time when it's an aberration to the upside or the downside it's still within the statistical range of probabilities that reflect nothing other than, oh, something is slightly off in this reporting, and so it's a little more or a little less than people yeah. were expecting, and yet everybody reacts and overreacts to it. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, everyone sort of comes with a default hair trigger mechanism. I mean, this example has been used so many times, it's, al it's almost dull at this point, but, you know, in evolutionary time, when our ancestors were evolving on the, you know, the plains of the African savanna, you know, if you thought you might see a lion and you overreacted to what you thought was the lion, well, you lived to, you know, pass, pass those your genes, genes on. on. Right. And the if person you, who was blasé about that, not a whole lot of progeny. Right. The thing <laughs> is, it, most of the time it wasn't a lion. Most of the time, it was just the wind, you know, waving a patch of grass. Mm -hmm. But that one time, it was a lion. If you overreacted, you survived, mm -hmm. and you passed your genes on. And if you underreacted, you were lion food. Mm -hmm. That that makes perfect sense. So I've used the phrase behavioral economics repeatedly, your behavioral finance. But the book, your your money or your brain, which you talk about the new science of neuroeconomics. Describe the difference between behavioral economics and and neurofinance. How, how do you how do you define that? Yeah, difference? it's really I think it's a I think it's a very simple distinction. I mean, neuroeconomics or or neurofinance simply uses the tools and techniques of neuroscience to extend existing research and findings in psychology and economics. And by those tools and techniques, it's primarily methods of measuring brain activity. MRIs, things along it's, those lines. Yeah, like a functional MRI, a PET scan, a CAT scan. Um, it could also be uh, various um, uh, uh, tools for monitoring brain waves or mm -hmm. electromagnetic activity in the brain. So, so the way I like to define that behavioral economics is you can see the results of this issue in someone's actual behavior. They did this, they bought that, they sold that. Uh, whereas neuro, you're actually looking inside their brain in some way and seeing what's going on organically as opposed to behaviorally. Yeah, and if you think about it, uh, there's 
there's not much difference between the two. Mm-hmm. In a way, behavioral economics is telling you what minds do, mm-hmm. and neuroeconomics is telling you what brains do. Right. It's we already. That's can, a great distinction. Yeah, between we can already observe the behavior mm-hmm. because somebody buys high and sells low. For they made example. a decision in their mind right. to do this. We and see. Then we see on. their action. We see what they did. So we know what happened. What neuroeconomics does is it says these are the specific circuits in the brain that generated the behavior you've observed in in your psychological experiments. Let me shift gears on you and, and let's talk a little bit about the problem with predictions. Uh, it, what's the problem? So we all make forecasts. Everybody, everybody on Wall State has a here's where the Dow will be in a year. Here's what I think these earnings are going to be. What's the problem with predictions? Well, I think the, there's a, there's many problems with them, Barry. I think the first problem is that people are people are very poor at learning from their predictive errors, particularly when the consequences aren't high or the feedback is noisy. D- define that. What do you mean by that? Well, think about it this way. Um, you know, uh, think of the quarterfinal match in the U.S. Open between the Williams sisters. Mm -hmm. You know, Venus and Serena are playing. Every stroke has three characteristics. The feedback, the feedback of every stroke. So if Venus hits the ball, Mm -hmm. it's in or it's out. And she knows that immediately. So the feedback is prompt and it's unambiguous. Secondly, every stroke matters. It's consequential. Mm -hmm. If if you miss too many shots, you lose, and you lose millions of dollars in front of millions of people. Other than that, though, really, it's just a game. Yeah. Other than that, it's just a game. So in in a sport like professional tennis, feedback is extremely reliable and a very powerful way of learning from your mistakes. If you take it seriously and you practice, you will get good at it. You'll get a lot better. The financial markets are different. The feedback is not prompt. Right. Year. It takes you years to find out. How nor is it unambiguous. I mean, let's say you and I decide today Netflix is going up, so we buy Netflix. Well, on the next tick, Netflix goes up, so we're right. But the next tick, it goes down, and now we're wrong. So we get up, we go to the bathroom, we come back, it's up, we're right. We go out for lunch. We come back. It's down. Now we're wrong. What is the feedback telling us? It, it's really noisy. The feedback is noise. Prices fluctuate. That, that's uh, what that's telling you. That's what it's telling you. So there is useful feedback in market prices, but it takes a long time to unfold, and you have to develop a real skill in interpreting the feedback. And a lot of people can't do that and the task at the same time, manage the money or uh, you know, pick the particular securities. And the consequences? The consequences for a lot of people are enormous. It depends how much skin you have in the game, right? How much of your reputation, your personal reputation, is riding on the line? If you're an employee, uh, just a face in a crowd at a giant asset management firm, uh, the consequences might not be all that great. The consequences for you aren't in being right or wrong, it's whether you're right or wrong relative to the crowd. Mm -hmm. And so you're not concerned with your absolute performance, whether what you did is right or wrong. You're concerned whether you're going to stand out 
for doing something different that might make you or the firm look foolish. Career risk? Is that is that what you're referring it's, to? It's career risk. And so if avoiding career risk steers you toward making timid or suboptimal decisions, mm -hmm. you can't learn from normal feedback because the feedback you care about is am I increasing or decreasing my career risk? As opposed to am I doing better or worse As an investor. in my investor investments? Yeah. Huh, yeah. That's quite fascinating. So, so when we look at predictions in general, you're looking at them with that three-prong analysis, similar to the way you would look at a sporting event, only the results, the timeline, and the, all three things are, are totally different. Yeah, and, you know, there's... I think the other thing that makes all of this baffling is we, in in daily life, we have a general belief, and it's been popularized as sort of the 10,000 hours rule, you know. The outlier if, rule, Malcolm Gladwell, yeah, blah, blah. Exactly. If you if you just practice anything long enough and hard enough, you'll get good at it. If, if that was true, wouldn't all the best fund managers be the guys who've been around the longest? Yes. And also, if that were true, everyone would be the Beatles. Everyone who's ever eventually everyone who's ever spent a lot of time plucking on a guitar would would be Eric Clapton. Right. And it's not really true because the second uh, essential criterion, the other thing you have to have is good feedback. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, you could spend thirty thousand hours playing guitar, but if you're tone deaf and you don't know you stink and nobody will tell you you stink, You'll never get good. Well, you'll figure it out when they're not buying your albums or going to your concerts, that's, or when they're the paying, clip. or when they're paying you not to play. <laughs> that's a whole different. Uh, that's a whole different issue. Um, another random question: Does money buy happiness, or is it the anticipation of money that leads to happiness? Well, yeah, I talked about this quite a bit in in my earlier book, "Your Money in Your Brain," and uh, anticipation. Uh, based on the on the research that's been done, I think is more of what I would call a hot state mm -hmm. than um, actually receiving a gain. So thinking about or imagining or contemplating the money you'll make if you turn out to be right is probably more at least as rewarding as getting the money is. I, I've used that analysis as an explanation for sell the news and you you kind of imply mm -hmm. that yep. in the book as well. Yeah. Yeah. So so put it into context of investing, why do stock prices run up to a quarterly earning, then you get a good earnings number and the stock goes down. Yeah, there's there's there in 1997 there was a fascinating study published in Science magazine, which as many of our listeners know is the is the preeminent Journal of Science in, in the U.S., and it, it looked at monkey brains, and they recorded from single neurons deep in the dopamine centers of the monkey's brains how they responded. And essentially, when the monkey receives an expected reward, the dopamine generation at the time the reward is received goes down. So the dopamine activity ramps up, as the monkey recognizes the predictive cue, here comes the banana. Here comes the banana. In this case, it was it was sugar water, but same idea. Here comes the here comes the banana. I'm going to get the banana. The banana's coming. 
And that's when the dopamine peaks. Then the monkey actually gets the banana and he's like, oh, I got the banana I've been wanting all along. And so that activity peaks and then it drops. And I think that's why so often in the stock market, you see the price of a, you see the company's stock price just ramp up and, and go parabolic when people are expecting a positive earnings surprise. The company is going to exceed analysts' expectations. Then the actual earnings come out and they're exactly what people thought they would be, just as good. And it goes down. It's a disappointment. There's a Spock quote from Star Trek, which I won't even attempt, but it's the same concept of wanting generating more satisfaction than actually having. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I find that, that fascinating. So related to some of um, these cognitive issues, um, what was it like working with Danny Kahneman on Thinking Fast and Slow? What what were your contributions uh, to the book? He, he I'm trying to remember if he thanked you in his Nobel speech or not. But um, <laughs> uh, no, he didn't. But I, I really, nor should he have. I, I read the book, or I read the first three quarters of the book on a beach some years ago, and found it just absolutely fascinating stuff. Well, we're, you know, working with Danny was one of the was one of the great experiences of of my life. Um, certainly, one of the great learning experiences. Um, you know he's he's got a remarkable mind and um he questions everything and he has he has that wonderful ability that most of us lose in our intellectual lifetime of putting ourselves almost into the shoes of a child mm -hmm. and saying just asking why mm -hmm. why is that um and He's often completely baffled by things that everyone takes for granted as an as an accepted truth, and he he just sort of scratches his head in front of it, says, "Well, why do people think that?" And it's not that he's doubting it; he just genuinely doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because he has the most perfectly calibrated sense of what he knows. I think of anybody I've ever certainly anybody I've ever worked no, with. No Dunning Kruger effect there. Very, very, very little. I only saw it once, which was the first day we worked physically together on the book in his apartment when he talked about the planning fallacy, mm -hmm. which I know you're familiar with, Barry, but I'll explain it for, for our listeners. Uh, he likes to tell a famous – a story that's become famous about one of the first major projects that he undertook – uh, when he was a young psychologist on the rise in Israel at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And um, he and some of his colleagues were working on rewriting uh, the standard high school psychology textbook for students in Israel. And that's a big undertaking mm -hmm. because it's, a, you know, it's, it's basically a core part of the curriculum. You have to start the textbook from scratch. And... Um, so they asked each other, well, how long will, should this take? And so one of them said, oh, I, I mean, how could it take more than seven or eight months? Another one said, well, maybe a year. And somebody else said, I don't know, a year and a half or something. And Danny's just sitting there listening, puzzled, the same way I just described. And then he – so he turns – he gets a light bulb and he, over his head and he turns to the dean of education at the uh, – the school they were affiliated with, the Hebrew University, and says to him, you know, 
Are you aware of other teams, other groups that have done similar projects like this one? And uh, the dean says, well, yeah, you know, now that you mention it, <laughs> I am. And I, that didn't occur to me before because he was one of the people who had given this low estimate of 10 months or something like that. So Danny says, oh, so of those groups, what, what was the average length of time it took them to complete the textbook? So the dean sort of pulls his chin for a while and everyone in the room is sort of shifting uneasily in their seats. And after a long pause, he says, well, I guess of those who completed <laughs> a similar project, I think it took on average about four years. But the, not counting the guys who were still working and haven't closed the, uh, right. and the so, timeline. And so then Danny says, oh, oh, okay. And what about the ones and how many, how many of these teams would you say never completed it? And he said, oh, I guess 40 or 50 percent. <laughs> and so the room goes dead silent. And so the corollary to this that's is hilarious. that they finally did finish the textbook. It took either seven or nine years. <laughs> Amazing. And if I, I think there's a second correlate. I think I'm remembering this right. It was never actually used. And the textbook. Yeah. Oh, because by so, that time it's already so out of date. It was out of date. And so, so the first day Danny and I are working on the book, he says to me, I really want to avoid the planning fallacy. Okay. And by the way, I forgot, Barry, that the, <laughs> just to sort of take this the final turn, the reason the planning fallacy is relevant is because it brings out a basic flaw in human cognition, which is when we're faced with any challenge or any set of data, what we tend to do is we think in very narrow framing. So you and I are going to write this textbook. So we think about it and we talk to each other and, we, and you say, well, I, you know, I'm good at this. And I say, well, you're good at it. I'm better. And we think about how qualified we are to do this, how excited we are about performing this task, and all we can really focus on is how we're going to do it better, faster, and, um, and more perfectly than anybody who's ever done it before. But we don't ask ourselves, what's the success rate of people who've tried this? There's a database mm -hmm. of all the other people who've tried it. What is it? What's in the data? And so we don't look at the base rate. And that's – Danny Kahneman is all about base rates. And so the, the wonderful line he gave me that I use all the time in my thinking and in my writing is he once said to me, the single most important question is what is the base rate? It's so funny you, you bring this up. Today, this is absolutely true. I was having a discussion on the train on the way in about a woman I work with, works, a woman I commute with is in fashion. And she's, she's on the train, she's always having these angry, like I, she pulls out her, her phone, oh, so annoyed, and she sends nasty emails to people. And I go, what's today? She goes, I get this email from somebody saying that they were, so they do these long, I won't mention the brand, but one of us is wearing it. And it's, um, it's a very well-known, famous brand, and she'll get this run off of a production line, and three of them were terrible. Mm. Oh, we have three. And she, I go, so 
why are you angry? She goes, three out of what? Three out of 50? Three out of 50,000? I don't know what this means. And I said to her, that's called numerator blindness or denominator blindness. Denominator blindness. Basically, they're giving you the numerator and ignoring the context of how many of this. So so the denominator blindness is, so if you want to impress the person who's sending you this idiotic, Mm -hmm. there were three bad units Mm -hmm. out of the production run. Tell them you you have denominator blindness. You're not yeah. aware of the context from the lower. You're only giving me the top number with no frame of reference. Correct. But but, but that that reminds me very similar to what is the base. Case. What is what is the base rate exactly? So, you know, so Danny says to me that first day, of all people, I don't want to be the one who commits the planning fallacy. I don't want us to in a s- book on no, on cognitive in, bias in a book that is going to talk about the planning fallacy. <laughs> right. So. Uh, I want us to figure out together how long this is likely to take so that we know what we're in for. And so we had a long conversation, and he has a method for debiasing mm-hmm. the planning fallacy. And we went oh, through really? it. Oh, really? We went through it perfectly. And at the end, we concluded it should take a year and a half to two years. I was going to say two years was yeah. my guess. And so I worked on the project with him for two years until you know I had other things that were demanding my attention. Um, but for those two years, it was pretty much a full-time job for me and for him, for that matter. And so at the end of those two years, he said, I'm about a third done, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and it took another, th- I think, three or four years after that. Oh, so, no kidding. So so he was right when he, when he said he was a third done. Uh, yeah, except he was wrong in the beginning when we two de- years. when we decided it would take two years. So, you know, it, 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 when I said that he 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 has a remarkable sense of his own limitations, that was one issue where I think he. But even there, he was aware of the fact that that was a problem. He, he knew it was to. a problem. He it's just the debiasing method didn't work. <laughs> well, and it's very difficult for most people. To, to de-bias, especially considering so many people are so unaware of their own biases. How can you protect yourself yeah. if you simply have no conception that, hey, I have a cognitive bias here, or I, or I have some, uh, aside from the fact that most many of these are already hardwired into you, if you're unaware of your confirmation bias, how are you going to avoid it? I, I tell people the reason we study this is so at least you have a fighting chance to debias yourself. Yeah, that is key. I mean, the biggest problem with the findings of behavioral economics is that most of the biases it identifies are unconscious. And by definition, you don't know you have this bias. So the single most powerful thing that you can do as an investor or for that matter a consumer of information or just an intelligent citizen is to use techniques to try to surface those biases in your own mind, at least make yourself aware of them. You know, it's funny because coming out of a legal background where the moot court exercise is basically you prepare a case and at any point in time you may be forced to argue the other side of the case. And it really gives you some degree of objectivity as to the strength and weaknesses of your arguments. And I started as a trader, and this was always something that was drilled into me. Hey, it doesn't matter if you're long or short. You have to be ready when the circumstances change 
to get out of that position and take the other position. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't go through those sort of processes of saying, because we have this whole conversation all the time, hey, are you a bull or a bear? Uh, You know, I'm whatever makes sense at the moment Mm -hmm. and don't feel the need to declare a major and stick to that regardless of what what the evidence says. Yeah, and isn't it interesting, Barry, that despite how badly reviled the legal profession is, almost as badly as uh, financial journalism, uh, when people are trying to figure out whether there's a conflict of interest at hand, they do call in lawyers because lawyers are better at evaluating that than most other professionals. Doctors are not good at it. People on Wall Street are not good at it. And a lot of financial journalists, for that matter, are not good at it. You have to be able to step back and look at both sides of the argument. And that's a bigger challenge. That's that's a skill set that you have to learn. It doesn't necessarily come easy. Once you kind of get into a groove of it, it becomes something that can be done. All right, I know I don't have you all day, so let me get to some of my favorite questions that I ask everybody um, in in the last 10 or 15 minutes we have. Um, You've mentioned some of your mentors. Who who were your earliest mentors, either as a a journalist or a um, neuroeconomic, neuroeconomist? Neurofinance? Yeah. And, uh, I, as a journalist, who are your early mentors? I, I'm gonna, I think I'm just going to mention one people, one person um, out of all the people I could mention. Um, my beloved editor at Forbes, Jim Michaels, who was the longtime editor of the magazine and uh, far and away one of the most brilliant editors I or anyone else uh, have ever encountered. And In 1992, when I was a young reporter at Forbes, Jim uh, decided that I would be the mutual funds editor. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the one thing I remembered in the nick of time was that that had been his first major job when he came to the magazine in the 1950s. So I knew better than to show disappointment on my face at having been handed such a boring assignment. Mm -hmm. so I said to him, do you have any advice for me? You did this job once. And he thought about it for a second, and he looked at me, and he sort of half smiled, and he said, don't get anybody's blood on your hands. Interesting. And I never forgot it. Uh, and I I know exactly what he meant by it, which was, you know, don't do your best not to give people advice you wouldn't take yourself. Uh, uh, the Hippocratic... First, do no harm. First, do no harm. Not not a bad uh, thing. We, we've been talking a lot about books and investors, and you mentioned The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. What other books really stood out to you uh, as you developed your 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 BS detector, your your journalism chops, and your finance chops? Yeah, there's a couple books I really love. I mean, we talked about Richard Feynman before. I mm-hmm. think anybody can pick up any of the oral history books. Uh, Surely you just Mr. Feynman? Yep. uh, Or um, What Do You Care What Other People Think is another wonderful one. Uh, Those books are fabulous. Even for someone with no background in science, they can teach you a little bit about how to think like a scientist, and uh, that's critical. There's a wonderful little book called um, How to Lie with Statistics by Daryl Huff. It's literally sitting on my night table right now. Which is such a fabulous book. Um, you know that, that came in out in I want to say the late fifties. Yeah, it came 60s. out in the fifties. Yeah, as a wonderful book. It, it, um, it doesn't seem dated at all. It's it's not. Timeless. It's not. It'll never go out of style. Um, 
Where Are the Customers' Yachts by Fred Schwade Jr., which was published in 1940. And I've he, never read that. Oh, I my I have God. the book, and I've been dying to get the free time to I can't that. believe I came on your show and you've never read I, that I'm, book. I'm not I'm leaving right now. I'm not exaggerating. That I actually mentioned that to someone in the beginning of you're the gonna, summer, you, that that's my reading, book to read this summer. And I no, you're going to read it tonight. It, I, it's. I started the first chapter and really enjoyed it. What I want you to do is read it aloud. I want you to read it aloud to You're yourself. You're the second person who's mentioned mm. that technique yeah. this read week. Read it aloud to yourself. All right. Yeah. Or to other people. You can walk in a room, start reading aloud from it. People stop what they're doing. Really? And they'll look at you. And well, listen. normally when you walk into a room and just start reading aloud from a book, people stop what they're doing. And yeah, but but after they guy? listen for a while, they'll right. go back to what they're doing. They won't do that with this book. All right, I'm gonna. I, I'm not exaggerating when I say of all the Wall Street books I have not read, this is the one that I've been most looking forward to reading. Not on my night table, on my dresser, but literally in the bedroom, no, it's, teed up. It's it is easily one of the five best books ever written. So about put this Wall a, ahead of the Goldman Sachs Elevator book, but move move this up the queue. Up the queue. Okay, it it it's in the top three beforehand. I'm I'm finishing uh, how to lie with statistics, and this was next in my yep. in my. No, you so you funny. have to. I I'm embarrassed to admit that I've had this sitting waiting to be read for six months, and I just haven't read it. It's a wonderful book. And uh, what other investors influenced you? Um, you know, uh, fairly early in my career, I was lucky enough to uh, get to know a bunch of really great wise people. Um. Uh, Sir John Templeton, mm -hmm. um, Phil Carre, Irving Kahn. These were all people who had lived through the crash of 1929 and had really benefited from it and developed a sort of incredibly powerful long-term perspective. Um, and I learned a lot from from those guys. Uh, and... Um, and also from some other people I, I was lucky to spend time with when it was easier to spend time with them. Michael Price, uh, Bill Miller, um, folks like that who've you know, sort of gone on to um, fame and fortune and, sure. and in some cases some, some misfortune as well. I've been well. trying to get Templeton on the show, but his people never respond. Yeah, he, he's not returning calls anymore. Yeah, it's bad. Um, Miller is a guy who's actually enjoying a little bit of a resurgence these yes. days. Yeah. He would be interesting to have a conversation with. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about the changing nature of financial journalism and and media. What do you see as the next major shifts that are that are coming in this space? Well, I think I think what is still desperately needed um, is um, filters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Twitter does a lot of that, but you, if you set it up right, if you use it you, right, you have to you have to approach Twitter very, very deliberately and intelligently to make it work for you instead of against you. And I think the time is coming when there will be platforms or applications that will intelligently filter material for people and do a real service. I don't think we're there yet, and I don't know what it's going to look like, but I I know it's coming, and I hope it comes soon. It's, that, that's really interesting. I, I find that a handful of um, aggregators are, are enormously helpful. I, I, I not only read a ton of stuff when I put together my morning reads, but I also look at a handful of other mm -hmm. aggregators and see 
what they're looking at, and I, I don't want to have too much overlap. I want to look and find interesting. But but that's human-driven. That's not robot-driven. Um, Twitter is really something that I think has so much potential. So long as you mute the annoying and block the intellectually dishonest, that that eliminates a lot of the noise. That, yeah, that's, and I think there's one yeah. other there's one other tip, Barry, and and I know you do this, and I I work very hard at it, which is you really want to use a service like Twitter to feed yourself as much disconfirmation as you yes. can. Yes. You really want to follow people and try to be followed by people you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. People you think are wrong, but you think they're intelligently wrong. I have that. Doug Cass has always had that role with me. We are frequently on the opposite side of a trade. And if I like a market or if I'm long-term bullish and Doug is short-term bearish, he forces me to sharpen my argument. On the other hand, I've been negative on gold for about four or five years, and when someone challenges me and their Twitter handle has either the word gold or bullion in it, I know I'm not getting an a, a honest, objective analysis on the other side. I want someone to explain to me why I should own gold when I don't want to own gold um, in a way that's objective and, and neutral and dispassionate. Mm-hmm. Don't go looking for that on Twitter. You're not going right. to find that. Right. And um, my favorite two questions I ask of all my guests First, what advice would you give to a millennial or a recent college graduate who is just beginning their career in financial journalism? Well, I would uh, – first of all, I guess the first advice I would give you is to make sure you're in the right field. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of smart people who would tell you you're crazy for trying to be a financial journalist right now, and you might want to listen to them. They could be right. Mm-hmm. The second thing is um, uh, arrive earlier and leave later than everybody else every day. Um, find the smartest people you can possibly find and learn everything you can from them. Ask everyone, what do you read? Uh, whom do you admire? Uh, who's the smartest person you know? Um, you know, when I started at Forbes in 1987, I, every day I would I would read the Wall Street Journal, and I would circle in red pen every quote from somebody who knew more about whatever it was than I did, mm-hmm. and then I would call that person up because in those days you had to call, and I would say I want to buy you breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks, and then I would just download from the person's brain, and then I you know I learned something I didn't know before. Huh, that's quite fascinating. And that worked. You can pick up the phone and call somebody. It it worked then, and I think it works now, too. Hmm. Although but, email is easier, obviously. To, to say the least. And, and our last question, what is it that you know today about financial reporting, investing, and journalism that you wish you knew 30 years ago? Well, my dad, who was a very wise man, uh, had a wonderful expression – which was that, and I think I remember this verbatim, it's remarkable how much you have to learn about something in order to discover how little you need to know about it. Mm-hmm. And that goes right back to Dunning-Kruger. There's the experts know their own skill set. Amateurs have no clue. Right. And I think the other, the other thing he was driving at 
is that in order to learn those few true things that are at the core of everything, you have to learn an enormous amount about them. And I guess the thing I most wish I had known at the beginning was um, where all this would come out, which is that ultimately success as an investor depends on one thing. It really only depends on one thing, self-control. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, when Benjamin Graham said uh, the, the investor's worst enemy is himself, he wasn't kidding. And uh, in a lot of ways, the entire book, The Intelligent Investor, boils down to that one sentence. And great investors have self-control. And everyone else can't be a great investor. If you don't have self-control, you don't belong in the game or you're not going to prevail at least. Hmm. That's quite fascinating. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for yep. spending so much time with us and being being so generous. If people want to find your work, the entire body of your work, I would re- be remiss if I didn't mention jasonswag.com. Mm-hmm. For those of you who follow me on Twitter and you will notice each morning around 6ish, you occasionally will see a Today in 1977, and I will reference what happened that day, and I probably do that uh, once or twice a week, that comes directly from this day in financial history, um, which I then have to edit down to 140 characters because it usually starts at about three or 400 characters. Yeah. And it, there is an art to getting a paragraph into a tweetable sentence. There sure is. Um, But I find that fascinating. There's a lot of great quotes there. There's basically who you are, what you've done. Is it safe to say just about every column you've written is either there or linked to from there that can be gotten? Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm, Plus your books, plus everything else. Like a good hedge fund manager, I'm backfilling. But it it takes time. I, I think I have everything back to 2013 and a lot of stuff back uh, 10, 15, or, or 20 years or more. Mm-hmm. In fact, I recently pulled something from your site that you had re-added there. I'm trying to remember what it was. It was like 15 years ago. It was a speech you had given. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I linked to it in the weekend reads because it was the longer form thing. Mm-hmm. And it I love when I... F- will find something that people haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. And then it starts just pinging mm-hmm. around, going mm-hmm. viral, and I'm like, oh, I guess everybody else liked it also. It was, yeah. uh, I wasn't out on a limb. That was a speech you gave. Do you know what I'm referring yeah, to? Yeah, I think I, it was a speech I gave that uh, that I called Fat Tails, Thin mm-hmm. Ice. That's right. Is that the one? And, and that 15 years not seen online for a long time, mm-hmm. and suddenly that goes viral. Yeah, a yeah. I gave, years later. It's a speech I gave at the Morningstar Investment Conference in uh, 2001, I think, uh, where I sort of talked about, uh, I guess, what would I say, a, a few risks that um, uh, materialized later, and uh, that I thought the financial advisor community was. Um, Uh, dangerously overlooking. Well, we're out of time, and I just wanted to thank you again for spending so much time. Um, You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If you enjoy this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you can see 
any of the other five dozen such podcasts we've had over the past year and change. Um, Jason Zweig, thank you again for, for coming by. My pleasure, Barry. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.